Hi, welcome back to Behind Startup Lines with me, Phil Guest. My guest today is Rachel Bell, founder of several businesses, including the highly successful PR firm Shine Communications. Rachel has a tremendous amount of experience to share, and in this episode, we talk about everything from hiring and building a strategic plan with a clear tactical approach and the value of PR for early stage businesses. We also talk about fear of failure as a driver to success and about leadership, including managing talented but difficult people and the rewards it offers. Rachel also talks about her work with Enterprise 100, or E100 as it's more commonly known, a private angel investment club operating within London Business School. As the president, Rachel sees a lot of startup pitches and gives us advice on how to get ready for angel backing. So without further ado, let's dive in. I'm delighted, Rachel, that you were able to join me today. It's great to see you again. Thank you for being a guest on Behind Startup Lines. Absolute pleasure, Phil. We met ages ago and we couldn't put our finger on exactly when we made the initial connection other than I think it was back in my days of media when you founded Shine Communications. And I think that that's going to be a really interesting place for us to start when we talk about your entrepreneurial journey But before we get into that, Rachel, why don't you introduce yourself to the listeners and tell us a bit about what you're up to these days? Okay, Um, my background is in public relations, starting uh, PR and marketing businesses. I started a number of um, businesses in the sort of early or late late 90s, it would be, and uh, the principal of which was a business called Shine, which we'll, we'll go on to talk about. And from that business, I ended up starting a number of other um, great companies, uh, a number of which became top 10 consumer agencies in the UK. So I think the thing that within my own professional circles, I'm probably best known for is um, helping unleash the talent of um the people that I work with in order to help us build um, a series of startups that have gone on to do great things. Uh, there's lots of things behind that, you know, in terms of helping to build incentives for people, helping to um, getting to know people and understand them and, and how you use all of that to sort of carve out and help carve out not just your own entrepreneurial journey, but that of others. And so that's probably what the first part of my career was all about and then in the latter stages I've sold a a couple of businesses and whilst I still have um, at least least four left um, they're all with very very capable management teams and need much less of my time and attention so as a consequence I now work as a non-exec with um, a number of mid-stage businesses I'd say SME companies not um, startups so much I find my personal talents are around helping business structure scale up but also to unleash the talents within their management teams uh, and that business is called brand spanking consulting uh, and I work directly with brands and work with um, a lot of different consultancy models helping them uh, work out what they're getting right and what they're missing in terms of evolving their management practices And then the other thing that um, I do, when I sort of stepped back from being a CEO and became chair of my own businesses, I wanted to carry on 
working within entrepreneurship. And it was at that point, actually, uh, London Business School reached out to me and asked me if I wanted to be, I, I had a number of meetings with different people, and uh, it led to a London Business School reaching out to me and asking me if I wanted to be one of their entrepreneurs in residence, which is great because it allows me to work with MBA students who are often refocusing their careers or their um, hot housing an idea that they want to take to market for investment. Um, alongside being an entrepreneur in residence for London Business School, I was also uh, for a long time a member of their Angel Investment Club E100, which I am still a member of, but I'm now in the form of president, uh, which is a lovely honorary position, which just allows me to sit across a lot of um, startup pitches every um, month to look at businesses looking for investment and chat through with them uh, and choose basically which ones are going to go forward into the E100, the 100 angel um, investors for uh, investment. So those are the main things. I also wrote a book a few years ago called um, Startup Pivots and Pop-Ups, which particularly focused on uh, not the big unicorn businesses that is so much is written about, but some of the smaller um, SME businesses that do the most incredible work, uh, particularly looking at female founders. And I really loved that journey. And um, I, I wrote a book with uh, Richard Hall, which uh, became shortlisted for a best business book, which um, I don't think I'll be writing a book again. It was absolutely exhausting. But uh, that aside, uh, <laughs> that aside, uh, I was very... Uh, I very much enjoyed the process and particularly getting to speak to so many fascinating entrepreneurs. So that, that's, that's me. Lots, lots of things I'm doing, but um, predominantly working with entrepreneurs and unleashing potential. What a great <laughs> story and what a huge amount for us to unpack. I mean, there is so much about the journey that you've been on, both as an entrepreneur building your own business, but also just seeing hundreds of other ideas being formed companies being created and some of the challenges so there is a hell of a lot to unpack here Rachel I'm really looking forward to diving into this and and going a bit deeper so let's go back to the beginning let's go back to shine communications and when you set that business up um just set the scene for us what was going on in the market at the time and what what gave you the idea to step away and build your own business well I was in my late 20s um and if I'm entirely honest Phil um it, it well, I think for, as, as for a lot, a lot of people, my business came about um, more by um, chance than any planning. Um, I had got to what they call an account director level within the big international agency that I was working in, and at that time, um, account directors didn't really pitch business on their own. Um, but through happenstance, I ended up. Um, uh, writing a document for a, a new business presentation which my director was due to deliver and I, with me probably stood next to her and um, she ended up getting called away to um, a more or a more urgent meeting so it was sort of pushed across to me to say well you know why don't you pitch it on your own rage see how you get on so it was me and two juniors went off to pitch um, a client. Uh, a, a new business opportunity for the agency it was called Dunlop Slasinger Group and we went in and pitched it and what I think I learned on that moment uh, it was the enormous liberation of being in the room as the person in charge <laughs> do you know what I wish they'd let me do this sooner because the minute I was in there on my own I stopped trying to sound um 
clever which is it was a really big fancy agency and i used to get myself in absolute knots trying to um uh, say all the right things and get completely tongue-tied and I used to do the most awful job of pitching business and I've done very few pitches and I certainly hadn't done one on my own but the minute I was left to my own devices on my own in the room um, I found that it was it was easy for me to come to life as myself pitch this business and it was a very early lesson as sort of turning up as yourself basically and I ended up winning winning that account which um and, and the agency had that piece of business for a couple of years, but because there wasn't anybody more senior in the room when it was one, um, it was always a point of some angst between me and the client and the agency because the client wanted the moon on a stick. The agency was cross that I was giving away as much time as I was. And in the end, uh, I'd said to my MD at the time, this is going to double. It's going to be great. We've, we've done all the pain. Just stick with it. Next budget is two months away. We, we've got this. Uh, but he ended up going in to see them without me, falling out with them, firing the client. And um, and unfortunately, uh, it, with him coming back without having discussed it and telling me that he'd fired the only piece of business I'd won, which I'd pretty much killed myself for, um, I ended up saying, oh, look, do you know what? I'm going to go as well. I, I, I've, I'm fed up with this. This, is, this has been a really painful process. And it's been a bit thankless. So I also had it in my notice. And at the time, my dad wasn't very well. So I was probably, you know, on a slightly shorter fuse, if I'm honest. And I thought I'm going to go back to being a waitress because I used to be a fabulous waitress and uh, give all of this up. Um, and the, the, the client said, come in house. I said, I, I thought I can't spell very well, so I won't do terribly well in there. I'll do an agency for you. And they said, great, do that. You're part of the brand team. You're part of the global strategy do it as an agency if that's what you want to do. So I got my first client through my agency firing, the only client I'd ever won, uh, which meant I was in no contractual um, dilemma around it. And it was just the shove I needed, really. Um, very sadly, my dad went on to die only a couple of months after that. He had heart disease. He got it very suddenly. He passed away. And I think that was the other gift that he probably gave me from the heavens, which is he lit an enormous fire in my stomach, uh, which was basically every piece of business was now coming with me. Uh, and we went on from there to never lose a pitch in our first year because, yeah, I had I had the, the fire and the passion and the hunger to go and do it. It was right at the time, a bit grief fueled, but it was right at the right time. And so Shine was born. Um, and that was a business um, that was named after... Uh, Nelson Mandela uh, from his inauguration speech which was a quote from that if you let your light shine you unconsciously give others permission to do the same and I really wanted to start a business uh, which had uh, the values of letting others to feel heard and listened to at the heart of the ethos behind it and that's why it was called Shine and it was probably one of the early uh, employee brands in the marketing marketplace because uh, it put people right at the heart of it. And that ended up becoming somewhat of a recipe for uh, successfully developing other people and businesses within it. So you've got your first customer off the back of great work that your previous company didn't appreciate. You then, then think, well, I'm going to turn this into a business and you start going after more customers. 
what did the early hires look like? I mean, who did you bring along on this journey with you? That's actually, that's actually a great question, Phil, because, um, you know, one of the things with starting a business is, uh, obviously, you have no track record or reputation. And when you leave a business that is, you know, a big player in the marketplace, obviously, you have people beating away to their door to be employed. So no one's even heard of you to never find anybody to hire. So the early days of... Um, shine we basically were almost all comers were welcome so you know i remember uh nick had come from being a waitress somebody else i think Fumi was just dropped out of her mba connor was in a rock band um somebody else was working in sky telesales um so actually the, the the team were um what i used to call my my bunch of muddy funsters they were just all very, uh, very lovely, great people. I had an attitude of, you know, hire for attitude, train for skills. I was very much on the tools uh, right. with clients in those early days. So I just, you know, we just, Jules, who was my number two um, at uh, my previous agency, moved across with me and said, right, Rachel, I'm joining you in this, um, in this mad adventure. So she was a co-founder with me, he was Jules. Jaws, and we just basically strapped all these people to us and off we went um and you know i tell you what i i one of the things i really um valued from that experience those early moments was a, a, a huge liberation for me was that i already knew i didn't know the answers you know because i'd, I'd promoted myself from account director to managing director overnight which was a title I was really enjoying, <laughs> but I didn't come with the um, the expectation even of myself to know all the answers. So it, from a very early point, I adopted a philosophy of asking for other people's views and other people's opinions. Um, and if I didn't know what I was doing, I was very quick to say so. Like, I don't really know how to do this. What do we all think? And I feel like that became a really great recipe in the early point of starting out of everybody feeling they were super important to the journey um, and making sure that you were getting everybody's ideas. And I think that's something that the business didn't lose was seeking the advice of others and scanning around for new and innovative solutions. And someone once said to me, you know, you're a great resource investigator, Rach. You know, and I took that as a huge compliment because if I find or see something that I think is could be useful for us, I'm quick to kind of assimilate how can we use that, what can we take from that, and how can we make that a part of our business. Uh, I think that's a, a, a useful thing I learned early on. And there must have been so many other parts of building a business. I mean, things like taking care of payroll and doing accounts and setting up people's gear and all that stuff which was new to you I mean did you just seek the same approach to help you know get other people to do this for you um I, I did a bit actually um I mean I was quite lucky in that my first piece of business gave me I think it was about a hundred grand's worth of fees it meant that I could hire I could pay for me and Jules within that. I mean, we were only earning an account manager's salary probably, but I could hire an exec to go in with it. But I, I didn't, from any point on the journey, try to do the work of a professional that I wasn't trained in. So I didn't try to do the accounts myself. I've never in my life sent out an invoice. I would highly recommend people do not attempt to send out their own invoices. Although there are lots of people like, I, I believe do it very well. That is not something I would attempt. So I felt, again, that was a 
um, a fortunate early decision because um, I had other things I needed to focus on. There's other things that I'm really, really good at. But overseeing the finances would have really bogged me down. And so getting a part-time bookkeeper in to make sure that uh, the invoicing and stuff's happening, that was an easy and early and quick decision. Um, and I used to meet up with people and ask their views and opinion. You know, I'd meet with up with other agency heads and say, oh, I've started a business, don't know what I'm doing. Uh, what can you tell me about that? <laughs> and it's amazing how, um, how many people are really delighted to help you on your early part of your journey. I find myself doing that for people all the time and I absolutely love it. You know, this, this standing on the shoulders of others is just such a quick win for anybody that's starting out is why not just lean into all of somebody else's learnings and experience and shorthand that for yourself. So I learned quickly about some of the just key metrics of agency life, like 50% income to salary, um, but use that to, um, to make sure that I was always getting the information I, I needed in a clear way. And I really built out the foundations of my um, business to that point. I'll just add a point to that, Phil, actually, which is that um, to simplify this, I had only ever written PR programs prior to starting my own business. And PR programs have objectives, strategies, tactics, and measures. So for every part of my business, for HR, for new business, for marketing, I kind of took each of the head office functions and took that approach. What my objectives for HR? What was my approach going to be? What were, tactically was I going to do? And how was I going to measure it? And that allowed me to set out KPIs for each part of the business. Um, probably within year two, I'd already got KPIs in place and six goals for the business, one against each of the head office functions. Um, and I was already doing reporting uh, for each parts of those and that came out of running a PR program and, and nothing more complicated than that I just uh, it got better as it as we went on I worked with different facilitators and uh, and took different hints and tips from people but I started to build an agency blueprint for how and what was important for tracking and managing and monitoring uh, my business um, and again, that was one of the things that when I went on to start a lot of other businesses, that was probably one of the reasons why I honed that. So put so much importance to honing that was that I, I realized I didn't want to keep doing the same thinking again and again. It was much quicker for me to blueprint the best way to do it. The annual planning cycle. What do I do every year? What do I want to do again next year? Let's put those dates in early. Let's not just keep reinventing the wheel every year. I got similar advice when I started out my business, which was don't do the tasks that someone is better qualified to do and things like accounting. Yeah, right. Even though, yeah, even though it's a lot easier now with tools like Xero, and I do send my own invoices, but I probably didn't process as many as you have, um, <laughs> that that's more manageable these days. But you're right. I, I was agonizing over spending, I think it was 200 quid a month on an accountant. And then my mentor, who was uh, the is the great um, David Mansfield, Capital Radio CEO, who I worked with way, way back, had said, like, you know, pick what you want to spend your time on. Is your time worth £200 a month doing accounts? No, give it to somebody else. So really good advice. 
But who were you answering to in the early days then, Rachel? Did you have external investors at the time or were you funding the business purely from the, the money that you were getting from the clients you were winning? Well, I, I was funding it myself. And, but, you know, the great thing about a marketing business is it's a very um, low cost to entry uh, to, to that marketplace. You know, you need a phone and you need a laptop and you don't really need anything else. I have to own something here, Phil, which is um, I'm dyslexic. And I have only two GCSEs and neither of them are either English or maths. So actually, you know, I think in some ways there's a couple of things I, just, I think they're worth mentioning is um, I was born in an era when girls weren't necessarily expected to go on to do great things. It, was, it wasn't that they weren't capable of it or they, that other girls weren't doing it. But I certainly was coming from a family where, you know, I know my brother went to private school and I went to a state school. Um, I don't think there's any consideration that anybody would ever be sending me to a private school. Thank the Lord. And I say that because um, I, I skipped a whole load of pressure by not going to a, a private school. I, I saw the pressure that my brother had on him for being you know, expected to perform and deliver at a certain level. And for me as a female, I, I have always found it hugely liberating that um, I've kind of always felt like I've skidded in under the radar. You know, like um, if it hadn't have worked, it didn't really matter. No one was really expecting it to work. I think if my brother had gone and done something and it hadn't have worked, I think they might have thought, mm, that's a bit of a shame, isn't it? Um, so I've kind of used both my sex as an advantage for freeing myself, as I think all people should, of expecting too much. You know, like have a go if it doesn't work. You know, it's, it's rarely the end of the world. You know, um, some people get put off by doing anything for fear of failing. And I, and I feel like I really got liberated from that. But also not being hugely academic. Um, uh, you know, and obviously now I've done a lot more on academia since those early days. But uh, being a lot less academic, again, freed me up from thinking I should know how to do this or I think I can do this. I thought, no, I don't know how to do this. I'll get somebody else to do it. I'll stick to doing the things that I'm really good at, which was winning business and winning clients and um, running teams. And so that, you know, that's where that sort of thinking comes from. But um, I feel as someone that may have struggled uh, academically, that was a huge liberation for me. And I can understand why people who know they're smart enough to get the invoices out start to think they should be doing it. But I don't think they should. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, we have a lot of uh, in common then about our education because mine wasn't uh, my finest hour either. And, and I, I did have an expensive private education that I wasted. Um, I was more of a feral uh, teenager, um, which is why when I joined the Royal Marines, everybody thought, what? What is this? This is like the uncontrollable Phil. And he's suddenly gone and done this. He'll never fit in there. And of course, that's exactly what I needed. Um, so we have a lot in common and we can talk about creating small bonfires with our, our qualifications another day. Um, but I want to dive deeper into this idea of uh, fear of failure because you're right. It's, if it's one thing that's driven but also held me and I'm sure many others back is this idea that you know, we hate losing. And this is how I think about it. I hate to lose. I'm competitive. I want to win. You know, I was a competitive sports person. I'm competitive in what I went to do in my career young run. And while not wanting to lose is a fear of failure that drives you to success, it also becomes a bit of a hindrance. And when I moved into startups, you had to get a grip with that because you can't go and work in a startup and not fail. It just doesn't happen. 
Um, so I found that, well, liberating, but also quite a challenge because I had to get used to the idea that you've got to fail to move forward. What's your experience of that, both as a business owner and someone who now coaches, mentors, guides other entrepreneurs who are probably going through the same thing? I mean, you know, failure is just an interesting word in itself, isn't it? You know, like, you know, who decides what's a win and what's a fail? Um, you know, if you if you have an experience in life that teaches you something that you think I'm now going to use that uh, more productively next time or I've 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 got something I know something, how to do something better now. You know, whatever is a failure. And uh, the notion that we should feel bad about um, not managing to do something right every time or getting it right every time, um, I think is, is is crackers and awful. And I, I don't like it. And I, I, feel, I feel sorry, you know, sorry, I feel bad for you that, you know, I can imagine you going to private school, there would be a lot more weight on your shoulders of, you know, of someone saying, oh, well, I've spent money on that now, so that's now failing on that. Um, whereas if you sort of skate out of a comprehensive school with a couple of exams, you've probably so, always someone further behind you, honestly. <laughs> so it's all fine. Um, and so, you know, life experience to me isn't about failing. And when I went out to, um, had my own business, on the one hand, if it didn't work out, well, then I knew I could see how I was going to make some money this year right and and I, I wanted to say that at the beginning you know when you start a business one of the key things to grasp a hold of is how much is coming in and how much is going out and is there anything left for me and it isn't really more complicated than that um, in its very simplistic you know in its simplest form and I think just crazily some people just miss that very simple fact you know we need to know how much is coming in how much is going out and I need to know I'm making some margin or at least what my run rate is and how long my cash will last. Uh, and how, that, that is a set of fag packet sums that you should be able to have in your head almost all the time. So that was, is one thing I'd just say about that as a bit of an aside. But when I started, I, I could cope with the idea that the business may not be a success in the long term. I could definitely see a way of making money in the short term because I had this contract and I could see a way of servicing it and landing with some money at the end of the year. And that's what I set about to do. But very quickly, uh, that fire in my belly that I was talking about meant that my competitiveness around really wanting to make this work, you know, really kicked in. So I worked very, very hard to win um, every opportunity that came in front of me. And I owned every opportunity that came in front of me. And that was very different from how I'd perhaps felt working for somebody else. You know, things, you know, like they say, you know, it just got real. You know, things were absolutely on the line and I felt that and I needed to make that difference and I needed to make it happen. So I would arrive fully engaged, fully intent on getting my opportunity across the line, laser focused on what's standing between me and that contract and what does this client need and can I deliver it and how do I make sure they know that I can deliver it and have I got a program to deliver it. And that um, fire for sure is the reason why in the first year, we won every single contract we pitched. I mean, and there was the FA Premier League and there was uh, Timberland and DuPont. Um, and our first ever pitch was a, a crazy little opportunity called Heat Busters. 
Um, and we were working for Dunlop Slashinger. I remember them sort of saying, you know, are you really excited about doing air conditioning units, Rachel? I'm like, you bet your life I am. And it's coming I in. I remember it well. <laughs> you know, yes. I wanted that piece of business yeah. um, because I think I felt I needed to know I could do this and I needed to prove to myself that I could bring it in. And I was genuinely excited to win those clients and we did outstanding work for them. Um, but there were many, many more pitches, obviously, beyond then um, that we didn't win. And I, I, I sometimes, you know, when the, the agency got bigger and you've got a couple of things on at once and, and, it, and it, it, everybody's biting off more than they could chew, really. You know, you end up thinking we should have just focused on one really good opportunity and trying to do both of them was a mistake. You know, and there's all sorts of learnings like that you might make of spreading yourself too thinly. But, but the thing I want to say really is that um, on the important pitches, as long as I feel like I left nothing on the table and that I turned up and done my best work, um, I was always happy with that. You know, you can really only control uh, you in the room, you know, and you can't control everything else. And if I give it my best shot, and I still feel that to this day, you know, if I if I turn up and give something my all, then that's that's the best I've got, you know, and, and I have to be happy with that. that that's all I've got. Great, great insight, uh, Rachel, and, and I agree with everything that you said there. I mean, you, you've touched on a few things already in this discussion around uh, being your authentic self, which clearly you are and you have been, and it's worked very well for you, um, but also showing up with your best self every opportunity. Um, and particularly when we're, this podcast is really about building the commercial side of early stage businesses. That's an important thing to remember when you're going into these client meetings that you put that effort in do you have any tips for when when you're doing that i mean i often talk to startup founders about adopting a buyer mindset rather than a seller mindset because i get this sense that founders sometimes put different hats on depending on what they're doing at the time i don't know if you agree with that have you, have you seen that in the startups that you've worked with yeah no I, I know exactly what you mean when you say that i mean um i think too often people don't stand in the choose in the shoes of the audience um and perhaps, you know, but particularly in PR and marketing, you know, we're, we're hugely guilty as a sector or as an industry of expecting everybody that everybody understands things as deeply uh, and into the nuance uh, as we do. You know, so you can sit there as a professional in any field and you kind of assume that everything you're saying is going to be absolutely make perfect sense to the person that you're talking to about. Uh, and very often you're in the room, particularly if you're if you're a consultancy, because they're they're acquiring a service that they are not steeped in. Mm -hmm. So I think it's super important to um, to recognise and understand your audience. I mean, this is this is you know marketing one hundred and one. This stuff is you need to understand the audience mm -hmm. that you're selling to uh, in order to be able to land the message correctly it's the essence of marketing it's also the essence of selling and um and and that applies whether it's your own business to win your own clients or whether it's um how you do your pr you know as a business or your marketing and um so yes i agree with that completely you, you need to adopt for the audience um the, the thing i want to say to that is also is that um if you're in a pitch situation um, you're, you also need to remember what ingredients have you got in the room? You know, what ingredient is does each person represent in this scenario? Um, 
a client isn't necessarily going to understand all the full genius of an idea that you've come up with uh, and in all the ways that it fires mm. out and you might be really you know excited for that because you've worked out that if they do this idea it's going to land for them in multiple ways and give you all sorts of additional content that you can do new things with um, so you're very excited about it but actually what the client's really buying is the team that stood in front of them uh, and they're often assessing mm. you know are these people that I trust are these people who I um, will enjoy having as part of my team and do I think they're capable um, of doing you know if they have the skills within them uh, of, of doing the job they want and, and am I meeting today the people that I'm going to be working with tomorrow or is this some sort of beauty parade and it'll all be different by Monday morning. It's often been a criticism, isn't it, of the of the agency model that you get pitched with this incredibly polished team and then the people who work on the account, they're different. And I work media owner side. So we were the people that ultimately were trying to then get the client's money through the agency to do the job. Um, but yeah, but you didn't have that problem because you were a small enough team and you were passionate and you were living it and that's what the client felt. And I think that's the same with whatever you're selling these days. I and mean, if you're going in selling software, you've got to, the client's got to believe that you do the job they're hiring you to do and that you're the team that's going to make sure that they extract every ounce of value out of this. Mm. Well, that's true when we were very small and the early days, of course, that's true. But by the time you get up to 60, 70 people, um, it's, you have a much bigger new business function running. You've got a you've got a bigger marketing function, um, and so the, the the way I personally overcame that was building a business unit model, which meant that I sort of ran any of my agencies with a number of small businesses within the bigger business. So the directors were. Um, principally hunter-gatherers at the top of those business units. There were a few farmers, as you say, that were farming some very big contracts that we might have. Um, but the majority of the business units had a hunter-gatherer um, at the top of the the business unit, um, which puts me in mind of, um, of something which I'm sure there's things you're going to want to come back to while we're talking about. But um, I'll just mention this is, you know, one of the other things that I learned early is you have to be very careful. And I, again, I, I put this down to my own personal background, which I think you'll relate to, Phil, is that you've got to make room and space for your hardest to manage people. You know, just because somebody is hard to manage or has an ego doesn't make them um, someone not worth understanding more deeply. Let's put it that way. Uh, I had many instances where when working with teams, um, you'd often particularly find very diligent team members, uh, often female, who were brilliant at dotting the I's and crossing the T's, getting all their paperwork in in time, um, running everything you know, in a very tidy fashion. Um, and uh, there were other team members who were a lot more outspoken, took a lot more management time, they were harder to pin down. Mm -hmm. uh, they used to have great ideas, lots of energy, but you couldn't, people sometimes would find those people hard to manage. Uh, but to my mind, they're often your best salespeople. Uh, and they're often mm -hmm. um, the people who are going to be the most driving if you incentivize them in the right way, if you give them the right, right. framework to work in. And so uh, I've always been very mindful to. Um, make time and space for people in the business that don't fit the regular mold. You know, it's it's super important to to focus on people's skills and make them a plus plus 
than focus on their weaknesses and just try and get them back to a neutral. Um, and so uh, I would really caution people against, just because they find somebody difficult to manage, to think that they're bad news. Because I often find they're the ones that I end up making into manager director later down the line. Right, because they have these superb skills. They may be more volatile. They're fantastic in the highs and really hard to manage in the lows. But that's, I don't know about you growing up, but that was me. You know, unstoppable when you're really at your best, but probably a nightmare to be around when you're at your worst. Um, and we need those, particularly in the early days of building a business. Well, I think, I think what you need is, um, I think they're, they're the people that are, they've got lots of ideas, they're always asking questions. They're, you know, they've hopefully got lots of enthusiasm, um, but they don't always know what to do with it. And then they, then they end up not getting their reporting on time, yes. you know, or they don't, you know, or there's a spelling mistake yeah. in it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. you, finding ways to channel those people, I, I often think they're often your best salespeople. And we don't want everybody just to be a report filler or a form filler. We need those people that are thinking outside the box, are working around obstacles. Uh, they're using that passion to find the, the, you know, the side entrance in on a deal, um, and you know, embrace it. Make them feel well, that level of inquisitiveness. Yeah, that that kind of people wanting to understand. I got in a lot, well, I'd say a lot of trouble. I wasn't very popular in the Marines when I was asking every minute why we were doing the things we were doing. And it wasn't because I was questioning what we were doing. I wanted to understand it, you know, and no one, everyone else was quite happy just to follow the thing. And I remember a corporal turning around to me, I think we were an exercise somewhere in Germany, and he's like, for God's sake, guest, stop asking effing questions. And I'm like, but... Hang on, I'm this, the core is all, the, they call it the thinking man's army. Well, it's called the thinking man's army. And the point is that we are supposed to be able to think on our feet. And he got the hump because I was like, why are we doing it that way, Corporal? Why are we doing Did not go down well with him. Yeah. No, Phil, do you know, you I, want that. You, you want that do. when you're building a business. I, I've been, I remember getting chucked out of my manager director's office for asking why. And he just found me so frustrating because I was constantly asking why. Um, because, because like you, I really wanted to understand it because sometimes what I was hearing didn't make any sense to me. And um, one of the things yes. I used to regularly say to my team is, you can ask me about anything. You know, if I can't answer you as to why we're doing something, then what that means to me is that I don't really know why we're doing it. So if you want to know why we're doing something, right. you, you, you ask me because um, I will know why. If you want to know why you're not earning as much as this person or why so-and-so earns more or why we're not going for this pitch or why we're um, bringing in another person at the same level, I know the answers to these things. So just ask me why and I will right. tell you. And, and I think, again, right. that kind of honesty, tr you know, transparency uh, was really important. Yeah, total transparency approach. Yeah. yeah. Not not everyone feels comfortable uh, going about it that way, but I've seen I've seen that model work well. I, I've seen it end badly as well when perhaps people aren't totally transparent about why they made the decisions they did, particularly when it comes to bringing people in or giving people more money and what have you. But yeah, if you can put get it right, um, it can be a very powerful way. Again, in the early stages of building a business, you need people that are following you because they believe what you believe um, and they believe in you, so you have to take them with you. Yeah, well, I think as well, you know, if you come, if you come at, uh, you know, from a working with teams perspective, if you come at things with a view that 
Um, I, I genuinely do feel I have everybody's best interest at heart. I've got the, the business's interest at heart, but I also want to see everybody do well within it. So even if, um, if someone isn't doing well, let's say, and they're not performing well, um, then I, I need to understand why that is. You know, is it because we've we've yeah. brought somebody in and promoted them to a level where they're now doing a job that doesn't suit them, or you know, it's not the right? Or we, we've hired somebody that isn't actually experienced enough in what we need them to do. That isn't really their fault that we've brought them in, but it also, and and it would be our fault that we've done that. But it'd be better to own that quickly, um, so that they don't aren't made to feel bad about that fact. Um, and they've got the op yes. the opportunity or the understanding as to whether they want to go through or whether we can even have got the time to go through the the, the process that you need to get through to be in the right place. Yeah, the, the, the redevelopment, yeah, the growing phase, yeah, yeah. I can't have a PR expert on the show and not ask you about PR and early stage companies. So can we dive a little bit into how that works does that work do you think pr works for early stage companies or, or when should companies be thinking about pr to their marketing plan um can you give us a few insights on that i absolutely can and um you know what what i'm about to say is going to sound a little strange um but it probably wasn't until i had my own businesses did i really understand just how effective pr is and for someone that would be selling PR and all of the benefits and what it will do, uh, which there's no part of me that didn't believe that, um, but to then experience it firsthand was one of those moments where you go, crikey, this stuff really does work, doesn't it? Um, and so, you know, what I'm talking about there is um, there's lots of lots and lots of very helpful and useful things that you can do um, to help get your business in the way of, you like of oncoming traffic in the way of new opportunities new clients new mm -hmm. customers um, I think the natural place to start when you start a new business is with your sales hat on is who do I need to convert as a sale um, in order to get this first contract or this second contract and I know that's that's how I felt when I first started is I needed to win clients. And so I was in sales mode, new business mm -hmm. mode, um, more than I was probably in marketing mode in the first couple of months. But because, um, you know, at my my foundations, I'm a PR person. Of course, I had um, already under my belt the bones of what I felt was going to be important in terms of publicity and marketing for my own business. Now, small business like mine, starting within the comms sector, the, the really only important press for me at the time was our trade media. And for lots of businesses that aren't selling directly mm -hmm. to the consumer, um, their trade media is their start point. So it, only if you've got a consumer-facing business right. do you need to worry about consumer-facing um, PR. Um uh, PR that you sell to the general public is called consumer PR. Uh, PR where you sell it to mm -hmm. um, a business to business is uh, business to business or trade PR. Um, and then there's corporate PR, which goes into mainstream newspapers and is in the corporate section of a mainstream newspaper, like the Telegraph right. or something, has the business pages. That's what you call corporate PR. And if you're not in PR, you wouldn't necessarily understand those three distinctions. 
So when you start a business, um, unless you're publicly quoted or you've got big investment, um, you know, you're probably not going to be relevant initially to the corporate pages. Um, yes. Unless you've got a viewpoint about an industry sector, like it could be something to do with AI or something where you've got a viewpoint to do with how AI is going to change the business world generically then that would go in uh to the business sections of national newspapers but the for the majority of people that will be listening to this your first forays into pr or marketing as a business owner is likely to be within your trade press and um, all yes. trade media uh, generally make their money from um some level of paid advertising um generally they'll have events where they've got two or three events they do for their industry a year at industry dinners. Uh, generally, they'll have um, an awards scheme that's running for their industry. Um, and so there's yeah. three aspects there. There's uh, news to go into your trade press, events that you can do speaker opportunities at or you can network at, um, and then there's awards that you can enter either for um, a part of your business that you can enter within your industry. I often start backwards, if you like. I, I remember when I started um, Shine, I said we were going to be best agency um, in, three, in five years and best new agency within the first three years. And so one of the first things I did right. was I had a look at one of the write-ups for best new agency in my trade press who'd last one best new agency and what were they writing about them you know what was so great about a best new agency that allowed them to win this award so that was a great start point for me to look back on what are the things i'm going to need to have done within this business to be best new agency and i think it was possibly unpicking that journey that allowed me to think about my strategies and tactics across each of my head office functions in order to build a best agency business uh, or a best new agency business. So, uh, you know, sometimes start at the end and, and work backwards would be a piece of advice. Um, but use all of your trade press. And, you know, the trade press love talking to the business owner. Um, you do obviously need to um, exercise a degree of caution because they will write anything you say. There is nothing, there is no such, such thing as off the record. Um, because sometimes they don't care whether they burn you or not. So you do need to be a bit careful about the extent to which right. you sort of talk freely when you're talking to the press. But uh, you've got opportunities at the point that you're hiring new people, winning new accounts or business, um, or giving comment to feature pieces. And there'll always be a list of feature pieces uh, available for the trade press of what they're going to be featuring in the coming months. And getting to know who the correspondence okay. is for your part of the sector is a question of just taking them out for lunch and getting to know them and i would say that is your way of suddenly pulling people a clients into your business rather than you having to sell on a you know pitch by pitch basis so we did marketing right from the get-go right. and the minute we got any coverage we found the phone was ringing off the hook because we would be listed as like the most fun place to work or that we just won a great big piece of business or that we had um been shortlisted for best new agency and any of these things put us on people's radar and they'd say oh i'm going to give these guys a, sound, a call they sound really great or I heard Rachel speak at this thing and she sounded brilliant okay. or whatever. So what I take away from that is 
thinking about where are the places that your audience, your, your prospective customers are spending time. So whether that's big events or whether that's certain media channels, you go look for those channels and you look to engage. Um, we know that now attending events is a pay-to-play model everywhere. So you've got to have enough money to be able to uh, invest in that. A lot of businesses don't have that cash early doors to be able to buy into these big events. What are you seeing tactically work well for very early stage bootstrap companies that perhaps can't pay to play? Uh, are you yeah, no, that yeah. they're using other tactics? We never paid to play. We would just um, we would just do like the PR piece of it. So we would be arriving, um, we'd make ourselves available to, to fill one of the speaker spots. We wouldn't get paid to fill in the speaker spot, yeah. but we yeah. would... Um, give away free content to their audience. You know, the audience to these uh, businesses are often either other agencies or uh, clients that um, are buying uh, those services. So you're giving away something free. You're doing the PR part of it. You're not paying for, we'd never buy a table or uh, we didn't have the money for that. And of course, you've got your own channels, Phil. I mean, another really key part of this, which has changed from the days when I started my own business to what we do now for clients, is um, is how you produce your own content and, and make that available right. both on your channel or on other people's channels is another great way of showcasing um, your viewpoint, your capability, your expertise for others to hear and learn about. Um, and, you know... So what sort of tactics have worked well there? When you, when you think now about the work that you've done as an entrepreneur in residence and, and with the E100, what are you seeing works well for, for building that side of awareness? Well, um, for any business that is... Um, looking to sell from a business to business perspective is providing some content let's let's take ai again um if there, there are lots of businesses that are contemplating how a ai might help um uh, s- speed the growth of their business or cut out um parts of their learning journey um and so if you're if you're a person that's got uh, within your team have got tech, technical capability for solving those problems, to do a podcast about that, or to do um, a free dinner, or to do a roundtable discussion where you invite five or six companies to come and discuss um, what their biggest challenges have been in um, uh, applying AI to their business is then something you can invite your prospective yeah. customers along to. You can record parts of that. You can then put that content out available to download. Um, you get to meet them, you get to engage with them, and you get to follow up with them with the, the content at the end of the day. So it's about building um, a platform uh, with some content at the heart of it that you can then feed out to people and engage people in a conversation um, is the easiest and softest way of selling to people, I think. Well, when you look at what's happening with social media now, and you look, there are a lot of there's a lot of people that are using that platform to broadcast their message, to build their personal brand. How, how do you see that? What in, in PR terms today, when you look at the evolution of that, what role is it playing, and what is it really contributing to those companies that want to use that as a channel to raise awareness? Is it still relevant, or is it just too noisy these days with 
so-called experts it's it's certainly noisy um but Mm. it's also imperative um you know everybody's seo you know their search engine optimization is working off of having relevant content attached to their website in order to make them more searchable so if you're not in the top five on a google search then even if somebody hears you speaking at a conference but they can't then find you then that opportunity is going to immediately yes. die. So it's so important that you're creating enough content around your own business and your own brand because it fuels every part of not only demonstrating where you're relevant within the sales chain for this, uh, for your prospective client, but it also gives you the authority to, you know, to talk to prospective clients and the um, the content attached to you to, in order to be discoverable. So it's all one big virtuous circle. Um, I don't see that changing. Yes. Uh, I think the real skill beca- comes around what you choose to talk about and the way that you do it. Um, people w- are looking for innovation in how people get their ideas across. So you need to spend a bit of time thinking right. about a, a more entertaining uh, more fun or more innovative or more challenging um, way of creating something that makes people stop and go, oh my goodness, that was clever, or those guys sound hilarious, right. or that sounds like a lot of fun, or right. yeah. uh, that point of view was so well put across. Just turning up, churning out the same stuff you know, again and again isn't that entertaining. And I don't suppose you've seen, of course, my ironing videos. Um, where I, I give sales advice while ironing shirts for the working week yeah so that was exactly that idea of doing something different and when I stopped doing them everyone's like where's the next one yeah um, like I, I, I love that people Phil. Were getting quite worried about all the all the steam <laughs> were getting quite worried I was going to burn everything um but, uh, you're right I mean it's standing out so what I'm hearing there then Rachel is yeah, content I've always been a big believer of it um we're, we're doing these podcasts not because there's an ulterior motive I and mean, we want the insights for, for a guide in the future. But right now it's about sharing insights from great founders like yourself. But it's about creating other content. So we're doing some written content. It's about showing up to events. It's about having an opinion that people can learn from. And that was something someone said to me the other day. They said, look, you've got an opinion on this thing. That's what makes you stand out. Uh, and I think that's the message here, isn't it? You've got to, you can't hide this under a rock. You've got to get out there through whatever channels. And it, let's admit, it's easier now to create a platform or, or, or use the platforms on which to create a voice. That's what you need to be doing. Even yeah. if marketing doesn't come naturally to you, you have to start somewhere. You, you, you really do. Because it's so much easier to be converting a warm lead than trying to hunt down a cold one. You know, you, you want yes. incoming... Yeah. More uh, so now than ever. Yes. Yeah, you know, people people are time poor. You know, you're so right about that. But I have so many email addresses and the amount of spam that I get across my various businesses, uh, email addresses, that I am pruning out anything very quickly that is not yes. relevant to uh, what I'm focused on because people have only got a limited amount of attention. They've only got a limited amount of time. So it's also worth considering you know, where this person's going to be or, you know, what moment in the day you're trying to occupy of theirs um, as you deliver this information Uh, and doing it in a way that is sensitive to the fact that, you know, get to the point, get in, get out, 
quickly let people know what it's about and, 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 and move on. Yeah, well, recent changes to some of the social media platforms like LinkedIn's changed its algorithm again to reward conversation, to reward practical insight. Um, and that's people have got to change their strategies now. I mean, just being the loudest doesn't cut it anymore on those platforms. And I think that's a good thing because we want to get down to give me something that I can use uh, that's helpful. And, and that's the message. You know, Think about really put yourself, you said it, put yourself in your audience's shoe, your customer's shoes. And if you can figure out really what they need to be able to achieve what they set out to do, that, then you're going to have more success. Rachel, this is great insight. I want to jump a little bit towards, I'm conscious uh, of, of your time and we could talk all day about this, but I want to talk a bit about your work within uh, being an entrepreneur in residence and what you're seeing with the companies that you support today and any tips that you give them about building their businesses, starting their businesses. Can we share a few insights on that front for us? Uh, certainly, uh, and we've touched on it, but getting the foundations right uh, early on within a business is, is so, so key. Uh, you need a strong platform for, for growth. So getting those foundations in place, um, you know, building out your business plan. Um, I, there, are, there are so many people that I know write a plan and then they do absolutely nothing with it. You know, they may as well have created a paper, right, yes. a, a paper plane than have made a plan. So, you know, make, make the work that you do super actionable. Um, Think in terms right. of tactics. And how do you do that? Well, you think about tactics. So you don't just think about the strategies or the objectives of what you want to achieve. Um, that said, if you don't have a really clear mission, I mean, I, I lay out what I want to achieve in five years. I then break it down to what, I, what will that right. will need me to have done each year to get there in five years. So that gives me some broad you know, first year or next year goals, basically, as the first part. You know, it's that sort of working backwards thing in action again. And then I write a, yes. a really detailed plan with uh, an objective strategy and tactics around each of the things that I'm going to do. And the tactics bit is absolutely key. And by that, what I mean is um, if you say that you want to, you, you're going to do more marketing this year. And um, you're going to have a podcast, right? And that's uh, the objective is to do more marketing. The strategy is to have a podcast. If you don't think about uh, and spend a bit of time thinking, what will that podcast be? So is it a series? Is it on a subject? How many will there be? How many, what months do they each need to come out? How many speakers will I need? Then as soon as you've got to that level of granularity around the idea, then you've got enough to hand that plan to somebody to go and do it or to, to go and make that happen. Or yes. for you to say yourself, right, all I've got to do is spot five people in AI that are going to do a speaker thing. I'll keep my eyes open for that. But if you never get past thinking, I'm going to do marketing and do a podcast, then getting the rest of it done just doesn't happen. In a quarter's time, you're still right, thinking, I need to... it just withers on the vine. It just withers yeah. away. So you have to get into the detail of what I'm going to deliver. Um, stick to a few things. I'd rather you do a few things well and make those happen uh, and stick to the important things than try and buy out a whole load of objectives. Um, it, it, just get, you know, set them every six months. I'm going to get these, I'm going to get these five things done in the next yes. six months. And then work on delivering them. You know, building a business is just a series of a lot of very small steps. 
um, and just trying to leap yes. to the end um, is great as a start place to claw back from. But there's no point in just thinking about where the end goal of where you want to be to alone. You've got to break it down into each of the little steps. And I, I feel that if any any success that I've ever had has come from just doing a lot of, uh, of very small, important steps um, and putting a lot of energy into right. a lot of small, but important with a plan, steps. With a direction in mind. Yeah. With a direction in mind, with an, with an outcome in mind. What you're describing there, Rachel, is, is a go-to-market plan. You're saying we've got to have some sort of go-to-market plan, but broken yeah. down with big ambition, a strategy to get to that ambition, and some specific activities, which we call tactics, yeah. to achieve it. Yes, exactly. And, you know, certainly when I'm, you know, not so much in my entrepreneur in residence role, but as the, the E100 president for the investments, you know, when, we, when I look at businesses that are looking to raise money... Um, the, the really key things for me within that are, uh, do they understand um, how many customers they're going to need to deliver this revenue forecast? And, and do I believe right. that they've got a strong enough plan in how they're going to attract that many customers and convert them within the time frame that they have? And is that time frame the right amount of time for this runway of cash to last them? Because your big fear as an investor is, right. am I going to invest in something that is going to run out of money before it gets to, you know, the great stuff? So you're investing in people that you think are really good operators that can deliver a plan, but they've got a really clear understanding of who they're selling to, how much they've got to sell, at what kind of price point within their marketplace, and if they're going to be able to do enough of that and sell at that level to make those revenues. And that's what you're betting on. But I notice too often people don't arrive with enough of that thinking done to give you a real sense that they right. are um, they're in a backable position. So um, you want some proof of what concept. They, what are they depending on then, Rachel? Um, they, what are they depending on when they come to you then, if they're not doing that work? When they, if the people that don't make it through to present to you know to present to their angels, the ones that end up getting left at the wayside, are the ones where um, their numbers look too ambitious. You know, there's there's a, there's, there's a golden point between too ambitious and not ambitious enough. Um, it is all a balancing right. point between what is the ask in terms of the money versus what is the prize. So depending on what money you're asking for, you know, also determines what does the size of the prize need to be if, you know, if you're going to raise that much money. And off of that ask, right. if you're, if you're going to raise that money, is that money got a clear enough plan to deliver? And sometimes they fall short of giving you any real sense of breaking down the customer numbers or they haven't really worked out all the price point, right. the pricing. So you sort of you've come up with a number, but you don't really know how many of these you've got to sell at what price to make that how number. You're get there. Right. Yeah. So then the number doesn't really. It's classic, classic Dragon's Den failure, isn't it? Well, yeah. It's like your numbers don't stack up. You well, you know, it's one of those failings of people sort of not keeping it simple, stupid. It's like if they were to stand right. in the shoes of an investor, or, or someone's asking them to give them money. And them saying to themselves, well, what would I want to know? You know, if someone is, am I going to get this money back is what right. they want to know, right? So if I give you this money, is it coming back to me? And if it's going to, if you're pricing yourself at 6 million, are you going to sell at more than 6 million? Or am I just funding you to get to 6 million and I get nothing on the share price that I've got? So right. the pricing and the economics of this are 
basic nuts and bolts stuff, really. You know, it, again, get it back to the fag packet sums. Keep Get back to the simple stuff. Is this, in the simplest terms, have I got a plan here that everybody can see how it works? Can I sell it and, and explain it easy enough? And do all these numbers stack up? And sometimes they get a bit lost in business school speak around you know the size of the available market and what the you know the capital position on everything is and you get lots and lots of lovely language around the whole thing um right. but you don't get a sense they've really thought about what basically is going to happen here you know what's the nuts and bolts of it uh, and they're letting business schools sometimes get in the way of um of the nuts and bolts is what i'd say too much theory, yeah. Too much theory and not enough uh, practical. You know how you're actually going to achieve it. Um, Rachel, tell us a bit about Enterprise 100 or E100, the private angel investment club that, that you're part of that comes out of London Business School. Uh, tell us a bit about it and tell us how uh, early stage companies can get involved. Um, so it's it's an an absolutely phenomenal group of hugely wise, hugely experienced, largely exited. Uh, entrepreneurs not everybody comes from having built their own business but there's a lot of people in there that have um, others come out of big business or city or private equity um, but they've basically got to a point in life where they've got enough money behind them that they can and, and have an appetite to invest in early stage businesses so a, a lot of them are doing it for um, because they love the passion and the excitement and this, you know, you know, you, I don't think if you've ever started a business, you ever lose the love of the energy and the excitement that startup businesses um, have about them. So there's a lot of love in the room with the yes. E100. There's a lot of capability in the room and um, they are using their own money to do early stage businesses that these, these are businesses that are uh, valued at less than 10 million that have generally got a proof of concept um, they've bootstrapped to get to that point and they're now looking for a um, relatively small amount of money. So we're talking about up to around um, 750 a million pounds worth of raise um, right. to get them to the next stage where they might do a Series A um, and raise um, more money. So they'll, they'll be giving away a, a decent chunk on a modest valuation. Right in order to get themselves to a stage where they will then give away very little to achieve uh, great or golden things. Right. And, um, but it's the risky, risky right. end. And how, how do people get involved? Or, or how does a company come and get on there? Uh, so if you go onto the uh, London Business Web School, L London Business School website, and go into the E100 area of the site, you can apply in there uh, to um, Jane Kadir, who was the founder of the club, uh, and she will walk you through the application process. There's a templated approach that you have to fill in. It's like a, a three-pager, which is just uh, templated that you fill out the nuts and bolts of um, sort of telling your story. Uh, and then that will turn into a pitch deck, uh, which for those that are shortlisted, we will then go through the pitch deck. There's probably about... 40 or 50 that come in and there's right. probably about 30 that come in and then we whittle that down to about 12 that we see um, and there'll be about six, uh, 12 to 14 that we see and then there'll be uh, four, six or seven places to pitch live. Uh, most people that participate, I'm, I'm happy to say, um, find the experience of even 
going through the process of applying and getting through to shortlist, hugely helpful. And those businesses, um, they'll sit in a small panel, panel which I'll head for the reviewing the pitch. And I, I do feel confident that all of them get quite a lot out of that process uh, in terms of thinking about where their pitch is or isn't hitting so they can go away if, if it's not right timing right. and get that honed up uh, and then they can come back if they're if they're not quite ready um and yeah we meet we you know we meet some amazing people there's um you come in and, and pitch on the evening in front of everybody it's also televised to those members that can't um or you know, pre-recorded for those people that can't um make it and then um there's a dinner afterwards that everybody gets to sort of hang out together and chat with the entrepreneurs. So it's a great chance to meet at both the breaks, the people that you're pitching to. It's a really high calibre and the club doesn't make any profit. So it's it's a really, it's a generous space. Great. Rachel, where can people find more about E100? Well, if they go online and look up enterprise100.co.uk, then they will be able to get straight into club from there and that will bypass the London Business School part of it. And then from there, they can apply to either be an investor or to be um, uh, to apply for investment. So we'd love to hear from them. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Thank you for that. I'm sure there'll be a lot of people looking up uh, that after uh, listening to this. Uh, Rachel, we're getting to the end of our conversation. I said I could talk to you all day about this. Um, we've got a tradition here where I get to ask you one military-esque tact sort of question related to your profession. Um, you haven't had a chance to prepare for this, but I'm going to uh, have a go, see what uh, you can come up with. This will be very easy for you. Um, so here we go. Final question. Guerrilla warfare is a well-known tactic in PR. And for early stage businesses, what advice would you give them if they were considering on building and running their own guerrilla warfare campaign? <laughs> You know what? That's, a, that's a, a, an interesting question, and not not one that's that easy to answer. Because of course, um, you know, a guerrilla marketing is all about um, being under the radar and sort of turning up and showing up and doing things that, in a slightly uh, less orthodox way, where you're not really having to pay for it. We have done, of course, over the years, loads and loads of stunts and. Um, guerrilla initiatives on behalf of clients but generally for consumer mm. brands um so for example we did face painting for i remember we had a tin Hem tim henman racket for uh, wimbledon and we we face painted everybody's faces black and white like his racket uh in the crowds it was unofficial right. we did it in the queues whilst people were queuing so when they turned up and we gave people cue cards out that they could flash up in the audience and uh, you know wimbledon went nuts about it but we didn't really care um, what's a bit, uh, what's a bit, uh, and we also, I remember we did for, I think it was EA Games, we, we did a prize giveaway for um, this petrol head game, which was free petrol. I think it was behind King's Cross somewhere. And everybody went flying over to the petrol station at King's Cross and we got a massive jam all across London and all the helicopters were up and uh, Metropolitan Police were going absolutely nuts and of oh, course we, we just apologised um, and of course EA Games thought it was fantastic but um, the difference between doing this for brands and doing this when it's your own brand is appropriateness so um, guerrilla tactics for your own brand um, I would say proceed with caution uh, 
Um, I remember a long time ago, it was a funny, I don't know kind of what we did. I, I'm going to struggle to remember this now, but it was a pitch for, um, I think it was for Bailey's. And we decided to go and do some sort of canvassing or some kind of stunt in the car park before the pitch. Uh, where we handed out something. I, can't, I literally can't remember the detail of it now. But we did something that really ended up um, pissing off the marketing director of the company that we were pitching for. And they ended up getting taken off the pitch list. <laughs> we remember thinking afterwards, oh God, right. that, didn't, that didn't work out very well, did it? <laughs> so my, my official answer to that is, I'm not sure guerrilla tactics um, are necessarily, in the true sense of the word, the way to go within your own industry because they normally involve pissing somebody off a little bit and that can backfire heavily right. yeah. uh, and being a good citizen within your own backyard is probably going to pay uh, bigger dividends would be my answer to that but uh, in the vein of right. um, getting things that you don't have to pay very much for uh, I would lean more into the things we were talking about earlier which is being a little bit cheeky and finding ways to show up at things or going to things as a visitor and using that opportunity to network for your own benefit um, is the kind of on the elbows on your belly crawling under the radar stuff I would do rather than anything more overt like it I see what you did there. Great. So we're on our stomachs. We're doing the, this whole course. I'm glad to see you've embraced the concept of behind startup lines. Rachel, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you today. Um, it's a lot of fun. We've covered a lot of ground. There's a lot of things we haven't covered. Um, I, I would have loved to have spent some more time talking about how you see societies have shifted today and whether now you know women have more of an opportunity to to win at times when you found it tough. And as a dad of two daughters, this is particularly relevant to me as well um is there anything we haven't touched on today that you'd like to, to finish up with before we say goodbye um i would just say this that um just in the vein of your question is i think there's a load of opportunity for everybody i think um you know the world um i think in the words of woody allen you know the, the, the people that win are the people that show up and um, I, I would just encourage people to be brave enough to be themselves, show up as themselves, and, um, and you've got to be in it um, to win it. So, you know, have a go. Do not worry about things not working. Um, just give yourself permission and uh, ask plenty of people for advice on the way. Uh, and the people are generally very happy to, uh, to help you along. So that would be my lasting advice on that one. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Phil. So thanks for inviting me on. Um, and if anybody's looking to find me at all, uh, I have my own website, which is rachel.bell.com. Uh, um, I've also got a brand spanking.com uh, website and you can find me in either of those places. Uh, so thanks very much, Phil. Well, absolute pleasure. Lovely to talk to you, Rachel. Thanks again. See you again soon. Bye. Take care. I thoroughly enjoyed my conversation with Rachel and I hope you did too. Such great insights to pitching to angels and using PR to raise awareness through content, a tactic that I'm a big believer in myself. If you enjoyed this episode, please give it a big fat five-star rating and be sure to share it with someone close to you. Thank you again for joining me on this episode. I'll be back here soon with more great founder insights. If you know of someone who would love to tell their story, please pass them my way. I'd love to meet them. Until next time, this is Behind Startup Lines. Over and out.